Nobody wants a relationship with a brick. It's not about the brick and mortar and it's not about the computer. It is about access to people. You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales, and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, where James Robert interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay and welcome to the 58th episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series and I'm excited to welcome Ron Shevlin to the show. Ron is the Director of Research at Cornerstone Advisors and a senior contributor at Forbes where he shares insights every week. And if you're not already following Ron's thinking, now is the time to do so. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thanks, James Robert, and it is great to be with you. It is it is good to be with you. It is good to talk because, my gosh, what uh, what a century 2020 was. As, as we reflect on that and really look ahead to 2021, what are you most excited and energized about right now, whether that just be personally or professionally? Okay, well, let's do the personal first because that's a real easy one. I got a six-month-old grandson, first grandson, and I got to tell you, it is it is a trip after having three daughters to have a boy in the family is, is a trip. Congrats. And I got to tell everybody, you know, if I knew how great it was going to be to be a grandfather, I would have skipped the middle step. And I would have just gone straight <laughs> to grandparents. 30 years of this parenting stuff was a you know long time. And so that's an easy one on, on the uh, personal front. Professionally, which I think where a lot of the listeners probably are a lot more interested in hearing about here, you know, there's a couple of things that I'm kind of really interested in about. You know, first of all, is thanks to the pandemic and you know what happened this year, you know, going into 2021, there is a whole new view about digital and its importance in the banks. And you know, first of all, what are we talking about here? Digital growth. So, you know, we're kind of preaching to the choir. But, you know, it feels to me like, you know, I've been preaching this move to digital for 10 or even 15 years now. And so, you know, finally, finally, I think there's a, you know, more of a mindset to really make digital number one. I've never been a big fan of this sort of, you know, online first, digital first, mobile first, AI first. I don't like that, you know, fill in the blank first stuff. But, you know, there's just a lot more importance being played on digital right now, which I think is good. And, you know, I hope we can get into this a little bit. I, you know, I think sort of talking about the differences between digital adoption and digital transformation is important. But, you know, while we've seen huge changes in digital adoption, I don't think that means that we've seen digital transformation. So I still think there's a a lot of running room for, for that. So that's one for sure. And another area that I'm kind of really looking forward to, to seeing a lot about is, the banking slash fintech, you know, partnership, integration, collaboration opportunities. You know, the early talk about it was, oh, fintech's going to disrupt and put the banks all out of business. And, you know, I've been harping against that for years. And, 
you know, I think we're kind of getting to the point where both sides of the, of the coin know that this is a lot more about collaboration than it is destruction and disruption kind of stuff. So those are the two hot areas. And the third one, I think they'll be tracking a lot in, in 2021, actually two more, one being the, the whole move to financial health. That's always been an important aspect, but you know, I think it's going to get real political in 2021. I think we're going to see regulations that are going to force banks and credit unions to demonstrate their impact on financial health. And then that last topic that I throw in there is this slow move to embedded finance, embedded banking, embedded payments, embedded lending is you know, really starting to, to come about. You've seen announcements in the past month from a bunch of you know, leaders in this space. And those are the three or four areas I think are you know, going to be kind of hot and that I'm going to be tracking in 2021. Well, I look forward to talking through a couple of them with you. I think you said something that was very interesting, this mindset of digital is really becoming the priority. It's something that you've been speaking about for a long time. I've been coaching about for a long time. But I want to hit on that point of mindset, particularly when we look at the opportunities between incumbents, traditional financial brands, banks, and credit unions partnering, not competing with fintech. Because really, fintech, I think, brings a different mindset to the space that can complement that of of the incumbent or the, the the legacy leader. It's not one is better than the other. Each brings their own unique ability. But I want to come back to this idea of mindset and and, and what is the mindset shift you're seeing? It's careful to pick the right words for this because in any discussion around digital, digital growth and, and mindset, it's easy to throw the word branch into the discussion at some point. But I think what I've been arguing for years is that it's not about the branch as a channel. It is about how to best enable interaction between the prospect, the customer, or the member, and the institution, whether it's in a sales or service type of of setting or interaction or transaction. I'll give you a good example of of this sort of shift and, and the importance of this. Back in the early 2000s, American Banker had an interview with the CEO of a commerce bank. Boy, I'm blanking out on his name, but he was a real famous guy who started the commerce bank in the 70s in New Jersey and and in Pennsylvania. Claggett would remember his name right off the bat. It's just, you know, I'm getting to that point where I can't remember anybody's name or anything like that. (laughs) But they had an interview and Commerce Bank wasn't making big investments in the online channel back in the early 2000s. American banker asked him why. And he said, and I remember this quote at least, he said, nobody wants a relationship with a computer. And okay, he had a point there, but I wish I could have, you know, countered that because my response is nobody wants a relationship with a brick. It's not about the brick and mortar and it's not about the computer. It is about access to people. And we're going into 2021. Look at, look at how we are interacting today. We didn't pick up the phone to do this. We're, we, you know, your, your audience isn't looking at us, but we're looking at each other. Yeah. This is a great way to interact. In fact, I can share my screen. I can show the documents. I can show the statement. I can hold up the receipt. I can do all these things. It's 2021. The better way to interact and access people 
in the institution is not by me getting up, driving down to the branch. It's by me getting on the computer and building, you know, getting this interaction. So the mindset that's changing is the real the realization that computers don't replace the branch in terms of interaction. They they supplement the ability to have access to people and facilitate that conversation. And that the face-to-face, the human-to-human interaction is absolutely important, but it doesn't have to be in a physical place with the, the two parties in the same room. Well, all I can think of it, and I hear Brett King now in the back of my head, like the it's digital augments the branch experience and it's digital. And, and you even touch on this, this idea of digital adoption versus digital transformation and the difference with that, because up to this point from what I've seen, and, and, and I can quantify this, whenever we do a digital growth diagnostic with a financial brand and we, we, we're typically working with a marketing team, but but we get into the leadership team and some other roles and just to get what's the perspective of digital growth. And it's very interesting that the mind always goes to, well, well it's online banking, it's mobile banking, it's, it's, already, it's all of the tools and it's like we're doing all of the tools so check 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 but the mindset is still rooted historically speaking of the what i would call the channels and what you're saying it's not about the channel we should maybe be more channel agnostic am i hearing that correctly and really it's all about the experience and experience being well-defined systems and processes that that help get someone to a better place financially, regardless of how they interact, because the human experience can be delivered through the digital experience or through the, the real world physical experience. I think we're in violent agreement. It, it is about the experience and the quality of the experience. Mm. And the quality of the experience encompasses a, a lot of different components and it involves convenience. How convenient is it to interact in that particular transaction? the quality of the resolution and outcome of that, and the quality of the ability to, to, to execute on that interaction. And that's why I think it's important to recognize that dif- difference and distinction between digital adoption and digital transformation. Yes, a lot more people have been logging on to mobile banking as a result of the pandemic. But the, the back end of all of this is a lot of banks and credit unions running around and scrambling to build out the capabilities because reality is, is that not all of the functionality can be executed in these digital channels. And so you're not digitally transformed until, well, you're not, not digitally transformed until you've done a bunch of things, not only just enabled the functionality. But, you know, listen, I I would argue, and I have argued, that you're not digitally transformed until your core is digitally transformed. (laughs) Second, you're not digitally transformed. I feel like like Jeff Foxworthy, you know, you know, you're, you know, you might be a redneck if, you know, well, you might be digitally transformed if you've transformed your core. You might be digitally transformed if you've incorporated AI into all of your systems and processes. You know, we talk about the impact of AI, you know, over time, but how can you, how can an institution say, oh, yes, we're fully digitally transformed when they haven't changed the core, they haven't changed the, they haven't incorporated AI, they have not built out their data infrastructure to incorporate a lot of third-party inputs, you know, built out that data ecosystem. 
you know, you, you might be digitally transformed if you've, you know, fully adopted the, you know, you've moved, fully moved to the cloud, and they haven't. So I'm surprised when I, you know, see the survey results that say, you know, one out of five banks feel that they've fully, you know, digitally transformed. It's like, no, you haven't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this idea, there's another element because I look at this for, particularly from the lens of digital growth and, and, and digital transformation is required for a financial man, brand to maximize their digital growth potential. And I look at that from the DX, the digital experience, which is made up of three sub experience, the lead experience, the customer or the member experience. And then really the untapped opportunity for a lot of financial brands is the referral experience, something that I, I can recall you and I were on on a stage for CU Water Cooler back in 2014, talking about the idea of referrals being a powerful tool for, for, for growth and acquisition. On the flip side of the equation is the human experience, which is delivered through help and hope multiplied by empathy. And But then there's a third experience that came out of 2020 that really got me thinking. It's like, okay, great. We're really focused on all of this external stuff, but where wh- why are we falling behind? Why are we having a trouble with this? And and all I could think of it's it's the employee experience. It's those who are having to deploy these digital technologies, whether it be as simple as what you and I are doing right now with recording through Zoom. I can see you, you can see me, and we're at opposite ends of the country right now. But it's a very different type of of communication and conversation that someone who might have been working in the branch for 10, 15, 20 years could be a bit of a challenge. So we also think we also have to think about the employee experience. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I couldn't agree more that that's very important, but you're kind of getting at from as far as I'm concerned is going back to sort of the mindset shift. You know, here's an interesting, at least I hope it's an interesting kind of perspective. You know, you've I'm sure people have seen the numbers, you know, Chime has 8 million customers and borrow two, 3 million. And, you know, it's incredibly impressive to think about that, you know, the, the growth that these challenger bank neobanks have had. But it's not all perfect in their world. You know, they are, they've got some challenges. The challenger banks have challenges. One of their challenges is demographics. They, mm. they tend to attract a lower middle income consumer that is just typically hard to to make profitable, it's you know, you've got to have a mix. It's great you can serve those customers, but you know the way most banks make money off of low middle income consumers is through overdraft, yep. and that's just not a good strategy for the long term. So that's one challenge they have. You know, another challenge that the challenger banks have is that they need to expand their their revenue models. You know, they come to market, say, oh, we have no fees. We have no this, no that. Well, it's great, but how are they making money just through interchange? It's a a limitation, especially when they have to, you know, share that with a a bank as a service provider. And number three, you know, the VCs love to talk about how the challenger banks have such a low cost of acquisition, CAC. Nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. Chime spent 40 to $50 million last year on TV advertising. Varo's up there, aspirations spending money on TV advertising. You know, they've got an increasing cost of customer acquisition. Now, let's take, the, take this view of, so three challenges that the challenger banks have. Customer demographics, the, the third one was the customer acquisition, and the, the second being the revenue. Let's take it from the perspective of a typical community-based financial institution, typical community bank or 
credit union. What are their challenges, James Robert? Well, number one, demographics. Their customers are too old. Number two, revenue. Interest income is, is getting challenged. They need to find new ways of getting you know, non-interest income. Number three, their cost of, of customer acquisition is increasing. <laughs> Same challenges on both sides of the coin. But now, who's going to win this battle? Would you rather, you know, have young consumers who are low to middle income consumers and go from there? Or would you rather have old consumers and try to go? I think I'd rather start with the younger consumers and and build from there. Number two, you've got new revenue. You've got revenue opportunities. Well, where would you rather start from? A team that has absolutely zero experience with new product development and deployment or a team that is basically all about new product development, deployment. And number three, your cost of acquisition, I'd rather start with the challenger banks whose mindset and capabilities are all about digital marketing. I mean, these guys, you look at what they're doing, their search marketing capabilities are strong. Their, Their site design is actually optimized for digital growth. Number three, they are, you know, you look at what like a Monzo or uh, in particular is doing, they build online communities. Yes. You know, they're just so much further ahead. And why, to get back to your point, mindset. They started from a digital mindset. You know, they, they are, you know, we talk a lot about consumers being digital natives, but the challenger banks are digital natives from a banking perspective. And I think that gives them a big advantage over the incumbents who may be sitting there with a lot of customers and members, but looking forward. All I can think of is as you're talking through this, comparing the challengers of the Neos to the incumbents is like an Amazon, Jeff Bezos, who started in the digital space to where Walmart went out and acquired jet.com and tried to bring jet into the old legacy business model. So Walmart was trying to become digital, but it was bringing the digital model into the legacy model. And that's created a lot of friction internally, you know, from, from an operational standpoint, even hearing you talk through this too, the idea of niche, of focusing around key market segments. And and you mentioned some of the challenges for the challengers being demographics, but I just had on the podcast, Ben shop it with Unify Money and he's going after more of a high income market and, and he knows that there are challenges with that high high income market that he's addressing, even the idea of digital communities. And so there's tremendous amounts of opportunities here. Can a traditional incumbent financial brand capture some of this thinking, capture even some of this capability? or even the mindset and bring it in internally? Is there is there an opportunity for that? Yes, because it's not all about cultural change and mindset change. It's about strategic clarity yes. and, and alignment. And you know what I often tell financial institutions to do is I, I, I tell them to, to take what I like to call the USAA approach. Now, I actually don't think USAA thinks of it this way, but it's at least a good example. You know, we're used to doing customer segmentation. And when you see segmentation, they often are displayed like in terms of quadrants or, you know, nine square, you know, you know, boxes kinds of things. Throw that out. Segmentation is the, the visual model is a bullseye. And at the center of USAA's bullseye are active deployed military members. And they basically design everything about their business around 
serving the needs of the active deployed military member. Now, reality is, is that that only makes up, I don't know what percentage of their total membership base, but it's not even a majority. But here's the reality, is if you can serve, if they can serve the active deployed military member, then they're probably doing a pretty good job of serving the active non-deployed military member, which is the next ring outside of the bullseye. And if they can serve those people pretty well, they're probably serving the non-active, non-deployed military members in the ring out of that. And if they can serve those people pretty well, they're probably serving the affiliated family members in the ring outside of that. And so reality is, is from a strategic perspective, you've got to answer the question, who's in our bullseye? And can we have more than one bullseye? But reality is that you focus on the customers or members who are in your bullseye and build around them. And then the likely thing that's going to happen is that even though you are focusing on a segment that is not that huge, you're going to get members or customers who are in the outer rings of that bullseye because you're doing such a great job of serving those in the bullseye. And here's, let me make the last point before you jump in because I can see you chomping at the bit. When you look at the challenger banks that are out there, you get the, you know, you see the big numbers for the Chime and the Varos and so forth. But if you look at the whole space, you know, who's out there? Are companies that like Joust that focus on gig workers, that's who's in their bullseye. Companies like 10th, which is now being renamed Boulevard, Donald Hawkins out of Kansas City, focusing on African-American consumers. And it's not just every African-American consumer. It's those that fit a particular profile of need. That's, that's who's in his bull, bullseye. You got challenger banks coming to market focusing on disabled consumers. There's one that it was just renamed. It was called B-Money. I think I don't know what they changed their name to. They're focusing on LGBT consumers. And so... This niche that you talked about is spot on, but you can't just pay lip service to it. There has to be unique needs. You know, we've seen for 15 years now, you know, the bank for women. Pink doesn't do, do it, my friend. It does not, it's not what, you know, and in fact, many women don't have unique needs. My wife manages the finances in this household and she says, I couldn't care less about a bank for women, you know, I'm managing a family. So, but there are segments in the, in the female population that do have unique needs and you got to find those. So define who's in the bullseye, but that's how you make the transition, James Robert. It's about, you know, redefining the strategic focus on particular segments that you have been successful in serving. And this is why a lot of the strategic planning processes that these banks and credit unions go through drive me nuts. It's because it's all like this greenfield thing of what, what are we gonna do in the next five years without a look back and saying, well, what made us successful in the past five to 10 years? Who are we, who are we attracting? And is that really who's in def by default in our, in our bullseye? That's right. It's who do we have 
is that who we need to continue to bring in going forward? And if not, then it becomes more of that blue sky activity of, well, let's recreate or refocus and get that clarity because because confusion leads to frustration. It leads to people getting stuck in what I call the cave of complacency or the circle of chaos and, and having that clarity and alignment throughout the entire organization. I can think of even you, you get you rattle off a lot of great examples. Aspiration for you know, that's another, you know, very niche focused brand. Rami over at HoneyFi, once again, you know, very focused around that. But I can think of multiple financial brands that I've made this recommendation of, quote unquote, niching down around. And the pushback is, well, what about people who fall outside of the bullseye? I mean, this is this literally has come up in a conversation within the last week of a financial brand who's wanting to focus down around, you know, people who drink beer, love beer, and love the outdoors because there's a co-affinity there within this particular community. And people are like, well, what about people who fall outside of that? I'm like, you're missing the point. It's you got to like, I love your analogy of the bullseye, because when you can identify the bullseye, you can focus all of those efforts, energies around the bullseye and get the halo effect of those who kind of fall on the other elements or the rings outside of that. But you know, and maybe this this brings to the next point and, and question I have for you, which is around the engagement crisis. You, you've done some research around where you found 7% of consumers are highly engaged with their primary bank and one in five are disengaged. What's the problem here? And what I think more importantly, we know the but why. Why is yeah. this? First, let's start with the with the definition, because I didn't just pull this. Well, I did pull the definition out of the air, but I didn't pull the numbers out of the air. This is part of the problem, too. The, the term engagement has been popular for about 15 years or so now. And it really first came about being popular from the advertising community who was using it as a mechanism for saying, you know, are consumers engaged with our advertising? Are they watching it and, you know, clicking on it? And that was engagement. And I'd always kind of thought of engagement as more of an emotional connection and an an emotional demonstration. It's, it's, you know, just because you check your account balance 15 times a week does not mean you're engaged. Turning to your bank or credit union a few times a week, a month, whatever it might be, for advice on how to manage your financial life and to talk about the issues and concerns, whether it's face-to-face or not face-to-face, or even using the tools, that demonstrated, you know, a greater level of engagement because of that emotional involvement or that emotional investment. So it's kind of a, you know, I'm looking at this notion of engagement from sort of this spectrum of, you know, transactional activity to more interactional activity. And so in a survey that I conducted of U.S. consumers recently, I wanted to kind of measure engagement. And so I asked, you know, how many times do you use the, your bank's debit card? Are you transacting on it? How often do you use their PFM tools? How often do you turn to them for help and advice? You know, I, I think there were four or five different measures by which I was you know, asking about behavior as well as more so than attitude. You know, I'm not a big fan of attitude. I don't care if you intend to refer me or not. It doesn't actually matter unless you do refer me. So it's all about behavior. I know intention to switch is really high, but guess what? Nobody does. They don't switch. They just add new accounts. And so 
the 7% figure was based on, you know, my scoring of the level of engagement and finding that, you know, there are just so many consumers out there who are not using their primary bank or credit union's debit card, do not have a credit card with their primary bank either, but are also not even using the, their bank's P2P tools. They're using Venmo or Square or somebody like that. They're using Credit Karma. They're using you know, all these external tools to help them manage their financial lives and make decisions about financial life. So that 7% are that small percent of people who are actually relying on their, quote, primary institution to, to do all these things. And then you've got that 20% who are basically saying the other end of the spectrum. I mean, they're not, they're not doing anything with their primary institution. In fact, may not be doing anything at all with anybody, but they're certainly not doing it with, with their primary, with who they say their primary institution is. And so, you know, look, we can, you need to do a whole nother show, by the way, if you haven't already on does being primary matter anymore? Because I think this, this really challenges the whole issue around what does primary mean anymore. And I think for a lot of consumers, primary is really nothing more than the place they park their, their paycheck. You know what I've been saying for a couple of years now, that you know, bank, checking accounts have become paycheck motels, temporary places for people's money to stay before it moves on to bigger and better places. But even the primary account. So that's... The, the first challenge, but I know where you want to go with this is like, so what? Well, the so what is that when you talk about growth and upsell and cross-sell and, you know, finding ways of, of deepening the relationship, you don't just, you know, look, you don't walk into a bar, walk into the, the prettiest girl you find and go, let's go. It doesn't work that way. And it's actually the same thing in business. I tried. I tried and it never worked. It never works. It never works. (laughs) Unless, you know, maybe you look like George Clooney or something at my age or, you know, I don't know the, the younger guys. But point is, is that, you know, there has to be this level of engagement. You need opportunities to interact and demonstrate the value you can provide and look, the reality even before 2020 was you, you couldn't have enough at-bats by getting people to come into the branch. You had to get the at-bats through digital engagement. And so 2020 only, you know, put the, put the lid on, on that, recognizing, you know, you're not going to go back. You're not going to go back to the point where you can drive enough people to the branch on a regular enough basis to have the at-bats and the level of interaction you need to develop engagement and a relationship. Yeah, hearing you talk through this, this idea of the transaction, that's the, once again, that's what I would consider the legacy mindset. The opportunity going forward is to really double down, operationally speaking, strategically speaking, is to put the transformation of people over the transaction of dollars and cents, which is another area that you've been focused on, this idea of financial health, financial well-being. And I'm very intrigued by what you've been advocating for for a couple of years now is, is, is financial health scores. Yeah, so let's go back to the financial health 
problem and, and the financial health perspective. First of all, and this can, it all comes back to mindset, right? You know, it's what's your perspective on the problem? And the, the, t- the traditional perspective of the financial health problem is that, well, people aren't financially literate. And so that causes them to financial problems and therefore leads to poor financial health. That's a, a wrong way of thinking about it. You know, I, I am a mechanical illiterate. I know, Jack, you know what about my car, but I'm a pretty good driver, at least in terms of safety and, you know, tickets. I, you know, don't need to be mechanically literate to be a good driver. We do not need to be financially literate to have good financial health. We need to have good financial behaviors. Yes. Once again, this comes back to behaviors. I need that you need to have discipline and behaviors. So first of all, we got to get off the, the, the stick thinking that raising the level of financial literacy is going to have any impact on financial health. Number two, we need to have some way of understanding the, the scope or the, the, the depth of the problem. And look, just because you only make forty or $50,000 a year does not mean your financial health is worse than somebody who makes $150,000 a year. True. Okay, there are plenty of people I know who are in the low to middle income le- income level who have the discipline and their the lifestyle that they're okay. And I know people who make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars that do not spend responsibly. And so we have to look at financial health first of all out of the context of income, more in the context of behavior, but most importantly in the context of a spectrum where. At one end, it's about performance, actually, not health. It's low performance to high performance. You know, but when you're at the low end, you tend to think about it as health, and at the high end, it's performance. But, you know, again, it, there's, there is a parallel to sort of the, the physical world here. You know, at my age, I'm not going to qualify for any Olympics, you know, at any next time they do it. But I'm not in bad, you know, physical health. But I'm not at the end of the other end of the spectrum where I'm, you know, anywhere close to being an elite, you know, athlete. Elite athletes aren't worried about financial health, uh, physical health. They're in great health. They worry about optimizing performance. But it's still a spectrum. At some point, you're out of the poor financial health range. And you may not be at high performance, but you're moving in that direction. You're wanting to learn how to do even better. Right. It's optimization, max and maximization. And so financial health is not this binary, you have health and you don't have health. It's a spectrum. And we need a way to, you know, understand where somebody's at on that spectrum, which is why the score becomes so important. And it's why the credit score doesn't cut it because that doesn't measure financial health. It simply measures one aspect of it, which is credit worthiness. And I think the reality too is that much like physical health, where you don't have a single score, you have thousands of scores. Yes. Dude, 
you go get your your go into to the lab, take that that drop of blood, and they come back with more scores than you could possibly ever imagine. And trust me, I know this now. You know, thanks to my health portal to see all these scores that they calculate. Well, we need something at least towards that. We don't need a thousand scores, but we probably need five or six scores that measure not just our credit worthiness, but how well are we doing from a savings perspective? How well are we doing from a spending perspective? How are we doing from a protection and security perspective? There's all these different aspects of our financial lives that are not being measured and scored and it is not about literacy. Don't even bring that up in conversation with me. I'll, I'll, go, I'll, I'll go off the deep end. Well, financial literacy, you know, I've been reading a lot of research recently how it could be doing a lot more. And this and this is coming from financial advisors who are saying financial literacy is doing more harm than good because it's giving people a sense of pseudo confidence that, oh, I know what I know. But coming back to the healthcare perspective, like I can go to Google and how many of us have done this? We get symptomatic. We go to Dr. Googled. We Google our symptoms and then we diagnose ourselves with the, the most God awful, horrible disease. And they're like, you know what? It's probably not the case. Let me call the real doctor and then go in and get his perspective, get his advice. Get And I think this is the key. Get his expertise to point us in the right direction of the actions and behaviors that we need to take to make ourselves feel even better. Right. And but to, to carry on that that analogy, what what's like one of the first thing the doctor does? He says, go get a test diagnosis go to the lab, go to the lab. And, you know, they they base it on your your scores across a range of things and then figure it out. And in in the in the financial world, we're like nowhere even close to, to doing that. And although I really give, you know, kudos to the financial health networks of the world and there's some other, you know, players you know, trying to create these scores, but we're just so far away from really incorporating that and institutionalizing it. But I, I think, you know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen in the next few years that's going to accelerate that. You know, for years we've had CRA in which the, you know, the, the regulations have required financial institutions to prove the impact they've had in the community. Well, there's been two problems with that, or there are now two problems with that. One is it's strictly focused on a lending perspective and, and not anything broader than that. And then second of all, what community is Chime in with 8 million customers? What community is, is SoFi? It, it, the notion of community it's changed. as a geographical construct is, is out the window. So that's going to change. And so, you know, what are the, the Elizabeth Warrens of the world going to advocate for here is that you've got to prove financial institutions that you are having a positive impact on consumers' financial health, wherever they live, and are more than just simply from a, that you're investing and lending in those places, you've got to prove this. And so how are you going to be able to prove that you've had a positive impact on your customers or members' financial health? by a widely accepted health score or set of scores that are accepted by the industry and so that you can measure and say, okay, you know, we've got a million members in our credit union and on average they're at a 73.5 and in the past year, you know, we upped that to 76.5. So get off my back regulators, see we're having a, a positive impact on the, on the community. Progress. And you know what yeah. else happens after that? It becomes the marketing tool. It becomes the tool that That's says, right. hey, 
consumers. Look at us. We've helped, we've helped our members or customers improve their financial health score by 5 10%, you know. And just like the investment world where they said, you know, past results don't, you know, they'll have the same, you know, caveats and things like that. But financial health will become the, the marketing tool for financial institutions. It's about quantification and making the intangible of money and even of digital, it, it begins to make it tangible because I can prove the progress that I'm making. It's not necessarily about perfection. It's about progress, not perfection. Something that I say over and over again with those that I coach, particularly at the leadership level, because it's like they, they're looking for this, this perfect thing. And I'm like, well, you've got to just, you got to, you got to crawl, you got to walk and then you can run and then you can run the marathon. And then to your point, then you can go and join the, the Olympics. So as, as we, wrap this up and what a great conversation this has been. Thank you so much. I want to end on a final thought from you as we look ahead into 2021 and we've covered a lot in the spectrum, but if we can distill this down, the biggest opportunity advice insight for others in the banking space to create or capture, if we could just like one thing that I have to focus on, what would that one thing be? Okay, the answer is two words. I can get it down to two words. And ironically, it's nothing we've actually talked about in the past hour. Ready? Small business. Small business is the, it's what's hurting right now. Mm. They are every aspect. There's just the opportunity space in the, in among small businesses, not just from just a bank account or a lending perspective, but in terms of Payments, invoicing, accounting, you know, up and down the, the line of their business. They are so hungry for help and assistance and the need for it that banks could be providing, credit unions could be providing. Small business, huge, huge opportunity for 2021 and beyond. Absolutely. I can think of a podcast that I, an interview that I did with Seth Siegel Gardner, who was one of the top chefs here in Houston, closed down his restaurant, uh, Pass and Provisions, amazing, amazing place. And then he moved out to Marfa, Texas. I want to say it was like last year and started a little place called Para Yavar. And it's Spanish and a butcher. Even I barely passed high school Spanish, but it means to go. And when we were talking about this, the challenges that small business, particularly in the service business, they're looking for a lot of help and they're looking for a lot of hope. So I'm, I'm yeah, we haven't talked about, we, we need to do that. We need to come back and have this conversation later this year and talk about what does that look like and what some of the progress has been, because it's one that I do see as, as, as really an amount of opportunity because that small business, it's the backbone of the community right there. The small business goes, then everything else kind of starts to crumble and fall away. So uh, we're totally, totally aligned on that. Listen, Ron, thank you so much for this conversation. I do appreciate it. Anyone listening wants to connect with you, wants to continue this conversation, what's the best way for them to reach out and say hello to you? At Art Shevlin, S-H-E-V-L-I-N on Twitter is the best way or get me on LinkedIn, both those channels I'm on. Don't don't bother with Facebook. I'm never on Facebook, but Twitter and LinkedIn, great places to be. And if I can, you know, please check out the fintech snark tank on Forbes. Absolutely, fintech snark tank on Forbes, LinkedIn, Twitter, not on Facebook, or as my wife refers to it, face waste. So, as always, and until next time, be well, do good, and wash your hands. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. Like what you hear? Tell a friend about the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and subscribe while you're there. To get even more practical and proven insights, visit www.digitalgrowth.com to grab a preview of James Robert's best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside you'll find a strategic marketing and sales blueprint framed around 12 key areas of focus that empower you to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Until next time, be well and do good.